The reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. Divorce. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So whose story are you living in this morning? Whose story are you living in? In uh, his book that I um, have perused, The All or Nothing Marriage, it came out in 2017, the social psychologist Eli Finkel uh, argues that the story of marriage has gone through three major transitions in the modern era. As people in developing and, and developed societies have climbed Maslow's hierarchy of needs, perhaps you've heard of that, when you can meet your basic survival needs, then you have a need for uh, psychological needs that you want to see met. And when you meet your psychological needs, you have your um, personal development, self-actualization needs that you need to meet, and so forth. And so he traces the development of marriage for about the last 200 years according to that. And uh, in his book, until about 1850, marriage, he says, was primar primarily a pragmatic institution. It was oriented towards helping spouses to survive and provide for their basic economic and, and, and survival needs. So men and women married in order to share tasks and produce children to expand the workforce on the farms and, and um, to provide enough shelter and food and clothing for themselves. And so even when marriages were difficult, divorce was strongly discouraged in that era because 
it could impact the physical health of certainly the family, but even the community, if people weren't able to work the land and to produce enough. And so there was a strong pressure communally against divorce. At the onset of the Industrial Revolution, uh, Dr. Finkel says, people became wealthier and the basic necessities of life were more easily acquired. Marriage was no longer necessary for the survival of people. And so between about 1850 and 1965, he says, marriage transitioned to a primarily love-based institution. Marriage became a way of meeting those psychological needs for love and for intimacy and for stability. The marital home became a safe haven away from the, the factories and, and workplaces out in the world where I can retreat to. And it provided a stable platform for raising children. In this era, divorce remained a taboo, if only for the sake of the emotional and psychological health of the family, certainly the children, stay together for the children, is the idea. From about 1965 through to the present, however, the story of marriage has changed yet again. With the advent of the contraceptive pill and the sexual revolution, many people found that marriage was no longer necessary to meet their need for love and for intimacy or even to raise children, really. And so marriage went through its latest transition. It became a primarily self-expressive institution where the emphasis is on spouses helping each other with their authenticity, with their personal growth goals. We are special individuals, and sometimes, uh, for some people, a spouse can help us on our voyage of self-discovery, which is what life is all about, isn't it? Being able to express ourselves and develop ourselves. In this story, marriage is about helping us become the best version of ourselves. And because marriage is no longer about community or family, but about an individual's development, the moral pressure has changed almost 180. One sociologist put it like this, not long ago, someone who was dissatisfied with his or her spouse and wanted a divorce had to justify that decision. Today, it's just the opposite. If you're not fulfilled by your marriage, you have to justify staying in it because of the tremendous cultural pressure to be good to oneself. Now, that is one way of telling the story of marriage. It is a story with us and our needs at the center of what marriage is about. Marriage is a human invention. It's designed to meet human needs. And as human needs change, marriage changes. Its meaning, its purpose changes to suit what we actually want and what we actually need. And if our needs conflict with marriage as an institution, or even if our individual needs conflict with our individual marriages, well, then we are free to dispose of it and to find another way to self-actualize. But while that might be the dominant story in wider society, I hope you can see that it differs fundamentally from the Christian story about marriage. In this morning's reading, we find Jesus radically reframing the story of marriage uh, and divorce in his own day. And Jesus' approach, I think, is just as radical today. 
because it pushes us out of the center of the story. It pushes our needs out of the center and, and replaces it with something far greater. Jesus tells a far better story about marriage with God as the origin and God as the end goal of all of life and certainly of marriage itself, both in singleness and in marriage, God is the, the origin and the goal. And the question I want you to consider as we think about this passage together is whose story are you living in? Whose story am I living in? Well, in verses 1 to 3, we see, um, the first thing I want you to see is that this question that Jesus has asked about marriage and divorce is not an honest question. According to verse 1, Jesus is focused on carrying out his own mission in the area. He's on an inexorable journey towards Jerusalem where he will be crucified over the, the coming um, months. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how long this is before the crucifixion, but he's on his way to Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel. He's moving from Galilee to Judea, and then we'll see him enter Jerusalem in chapter 21. And as he moves towards the cross, we're told in verse 2 that large crowds are coming to him. They're, they're wanting to hear from him, and mostly they're wanting to be healed by him. So he's going about his ministry and his mission. But the Pharisees, the religious experts of the day, they didn't want to come to him for healing. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was drawing such large crowds. And so they came to test him. Or another way of translating that would be they came to tempt him. Their intention was to draw Jesus in to one of the hotly debated topics of their day the, with the hope that his response would upset people and that it would delegitimize him in the eyes of the people. Even today, teaching on marriage and divorce is sometimes deeply upsetting in churches because it touches issues very close to us and, and very close to our own experience. And so I hope that um, as, as we talk about it today, you, you will see that it is a trap to be, um, to be deeply upset and to, uh, to turn away from Jesus on the basis of this teaching. If the arrest and execution of John the Baptist for questioning the legitimacy of Herod's marriage was any indication, maybe the Pharisees were hoping that as Jesus made a pronouncement on this issue, uh, it would get him into some political trouble. Maybe he would meet the same end as John the Baptist had, head chopped off. In other words, it was a trap. At that time, there were two schools of thought about divorce which centered on two different ways of reading Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And if you would maybe turn to that passage, you can keep your finger in Matthew 19 and turn to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. But we'll really focus on verse 1 so that you can see what the debate hinged on here. Here's what Deuteronomy 24 says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man and 
Her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring your sin, do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So, particularly verse 1 there was the, the ground for the debate in the day. The Hillelites were the liberal school of interpreters, and they read it to say that divorce was permitted for any and every reason. So they focus on the finding something indecent about the wife. And they extended that to say, even if maybe the wife burned the meal, that would be reason enough, because any reason is reason enough to divorce. The Shemites, uh, sorry, the Shemites were the conservative school, and they read it to say that divorce was only permitted if the husband found something indecent about the wife. So they focused on the indecent part of that verse and said, that's really uh, about adultery, about committing adultery. Uh, more literally, it's found something naked about her, found nakedness about her. So both schools agreed that husbands, and it was just husbands at that time, were able to divorce their wives. The question was, on what basis were they able to divorce their wives? And so the Pharisees bring this question to Jesus. Back in chapter 19 of Matthew, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? But Jesus refused to answer their question on their terms. Instead, he takes the conversation back a step from the, the legal rights of, God, uh, of God's law to God's creational design for marriage. So we've seen that it's a trap, but the way that Jesus answers highlights for us the second major point we need to see, the God-givenness of marriage. Haven't you read, he replied, verse 4, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Moving from the God-given law of Deuteronomy 24, Jesus goes back to the more fundamental God-given design for marriage of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The Creator who made humanity in two different sexes also established the one-flesh union of marriage. Marriage is therefore just as much a creation of God as land and sea are a creation of God, as fish and fowl are a creation of God, as humanity itself is a creation of God, which of course immediately undermines both their story and our story about marriage. Because rather than a human institution created to meet any number of human needs, infinitely malleable to be changed, to, to be whatever you want it to be, marriage is God-given. He has set the, the parameters for marriage. He has given its purposes. And whether we might feel like it's working for us or not, He has determined how it should operate. Now, there, there's a lot that you could draw from that principle, but let me draw out three things for you. 
three implications. The first is, if marriage is God-given, it is pre-political. It's a pre-political institution. That means it's not something that human societies have established, but something that is built into the fabric of creation itself. And therefore, we are not free to define it or redefine it however we please. Marriage cannot be a relationship between a person and an object. It cannot be a relationship between three or more people. And perhaps, um, perhaps most disturbingly to people in our era, it cannot be a relationship between people of the same sex. There may be all sorts of other contracts and legal arrangements that can be built around those other types of relationships, if we so choose. I think there's a discussion to be had about whether that would be to the benefit of um, nations to do that or not, but the, the Christian understanding says that they cannot be marriages, because marriage is a thing that God has given with particular parameters. And, I mean, even in polygamous societies, it, Marriage was always only between a man and a, a woman, not between the whole group of people, but the man marrying multiple women, or in some places, women marrying multiple men. A pair of two is what marriage is. Because marriage is God-given in creation. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female, the male-female dyad. It's the only possible... Um, source and foundation for human life, and marriage governs that relationship. So that's the first thing that I, I think we can take from what Jesus is saying here. Marriage is pre-political. Secondly, if marriage is God-given, marriage has a particular function. It is telling that Jesus attributes what looks like an editorial note in Genesis 2, verse 24. He attributes that editorial note to God himself. It's after Adam has seen Eve and he's sung her, her praises, he says, finally, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And the, the narrative in Genesis says, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus says, that's what God said. Because according to Jesus, what the scriptures say is what God says. He doesn't distinguish between the author and the speaker. He uh, holds them together. And so by decree of the creator, marriage is designed to be a one flesh union, which takes precedence over every other relationship. In traditional cultures where honoring parents is one of the highest obligations a person can have, it is surprising to see that one of the functions of marriage is to publicly distance people from their parents, and, and it's to relativize the claims of the natural family on a person. And as much as two becoming one flesh, it clearly has a physical expression in sexual union. It just as clearly extends beyond a physical act to a union in every aspect of life, emotional, psychological, spiritual, and so forth. It is this uniquely strong, public, psychosexual union uh, which provides the space for children to be born and to be raised. 
It is the most basic building block of human society. It has a particular function. Thirdly, if it's God-given, marriage is permanent. Now that surely is the implication of verse 6, isn't it? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When the issue of divorce is raised, Jesus deliberately calls to mind the imagery of mutilation, of dismemberment. It's not something that should be undertaken lightly, in other words. That, that isn't to say that there's no reason why such extreme measures would be permissible, because sometimes amputation is necessary. But you don't do an amputation, I take it from the vets in the room or from doctors, you don't do an amputation for any and every reason. According to Jesus, this is God's design for marriage. But like children trying to test out the boundaries of authority, the Pharisees turn back to that Deuteronomy 24 passage, and they want to see how much they can get away with. That's their focus. What are we allowed to do? Why then, they say, verse 7, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, in their telling, Jesus is opposing something that Moses commanded. And that's obviously a, a, a trap. They're hoping that Jesus is contradicting the law and therefore opposing God. This question is clearly meant to justify their own position and their own opinions and behavior, while at the same time trapping Jesus. But Jesus responds to them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus doesn't contradict the law, but he shows that it's given to deal with a situation that has already fallen far from the creation ideal due to sin. The certificate of divorce is permitted in order to limit the damage caused by a broken marriage, by sin. It became necessary due to sclerocardia, hard hearts, a sclerotic heart. But by giving divorce as this sort of remedial measure for dealing with sin, God's intention for marriage doesn't change. God's creation purpose still stands, even though sin sometimes mars his purpose, even though divorce sometimes is permissible. The intention is clearly that it be permanent. And as he did in Matthew 5, verse 32, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus finally weighs in on the argument of the day and shows that the right interpretation of the law is the one that only permits divorce in a very limited set of circumstances. Divorce is never commanded in Scripture, but it is sometimes permitted as the least worst option. And Jesus, speaking into a society that accepted any fault divorce, is not so far from speaking into our society of a no-fault divorce, is it? We live in a, an era where we don't even need to give a reason why we would wish to break our marriage vows. 
but that's clearly not permissible for a Christian because we want to honor the Creator's intention for marriage. In all but the worst circumstances of betrayal or of abandonment, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, where forgiveness becomes almost humanly impossible in those situations, we should not entertain the idea of divorce. And if our marriages are going to survive in a sinful and fallen world, the only way that's going to happen is if we have soft hearts toward our spouses. Not sclerotic hearts, but soft hearts, forgiving hearts. But I guess one of the questions that we might ask is why? You know, if marriage is about meeting our needs, about our survival, our emotional needs, our uh, psychological needs, well then, we know why we get married and why we would want to, to be divorced then. If marriage is God's creation, what is it for? Well, I think what Jesus says in the last section here is that it's for the furthering of the kingdom of heaven. You know, the disciples balk at this uh, surprising, at, at this extreme picture of marriage as a, a permanent union. And they say, it would be better to be single. And Jesus replies, well, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it was given. That is, the word about it being better to be single. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In the pagan world, including in Rome, eunuchs were often trusted servants of the king and of the emperor. They posed no danger of diluting the royal bloodlines because they weren't able to, and, and they had no family of their own which would divide their loyalties, and so they were able to commit themselves fully to the service of the king or the state or, or wherever they were put. Their work was their completely absorbing task. And using the metaphor of eunuchs, because and it is a metaphor because mutilating one's body is contrary to God's law. Jesus says that those who forego marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven are making a worthy sacrifice. Now that would have been astonishing to the ancient world. That was a, a, a time and a place where everyone was expected to get married. It wasn't really thought of as an option. The question was who you would marry, but it wasn't a question that you would marry. And yet Jesus says, and Jesus lived, the idea that there is a higher calling of glorifying God that's worth foregoing marriage, the immense good of marriage for. And so I think that when we read that, we can say, according to Jesus, the Christian story about marriage is the same as the Christian story about singleness. What is it about? What is it for? It's to be used to glorify God in the world, to uh, serve his kingdom in the world. Whether in singleness or in marriage, our goal is to glorify God with our lives. And we glorify God by living lives that reflect his character, a character of sacrificial service others, a character of holiness and, and righteousness. 
Jesus is the one who overlooked all of his own needs for the good of others, for the sake of his people. Jesus is the one that responded to betrayal and rejection with forgiveness and grace. Jesus is the one that gave salvation to those who did him wrong. He didn't return evil for evil, but he returned good for evil. Which is why when my needs aren't being met, but I remain committed in my marriage, God is glorified. Which is why when I've been wronged and I return good for evil in my marriage, God is glorified. It's why when I sacrificially serve in my marriage, God is glorified. What is God's purpose for marriage? It's to bring himself glory. And just the same for singleness. And it is worth saying that I know that some of us have been through the, the mutilation of divorce. And that is a sad thing. We can recognize it to be sad, but you should see that your purpose in life doesn't change after that. Actually, your purpose, whether single or uh, divorced or married, remains to glorify God with the whole of your life. And so maybe if, uh, maybe if that's been uh, something that you have been unable to, to bring yourself through, you saw yourself as a spouse, you saw yourself as a parent, and, and in the divorce that has all been uh, sort of changed and affected, and, and what is your purpose now? Well, know what Jesus says is your purpose is to glorify him, enjoy him, extend his kingdom, whether you're single we're married, we're divorced. And I think that's a liberating message because it means that your purpose hasn't been lost in your divorce. Your purpose remains. You can live a life pleasing to God even in the wake of a sadness. And that applies in every area of life, of course, but certainly to divorce. So according to Jesus, it turns out that marriage for the same thing as singleness. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. So how will you do that in your marriage this week? How will you do that in your singleness this week? If that's your purpose, if that's my purpose, first of all, we ought to take it to the Lord in prayer. So allow me to pray. Father, Thank you that you have given us purpose and that you have called us into your service, whether single or married or even divorced, that we all share the purpose of glorifying you. Please would you keep us from the, uh, the self-justifying, the um, judgmental and condemning attitude of the Pharisees, seeking only to trap and to pin down and, and to assert our own superiority. And please would you keep us coming back to the Lord Jesus who overlooked his own needs for the sake of others. Please would you make us like that. And Lord, I pray that if there are some who are in terribly difficult marriages, that you would give them a measure of grace this week. Sustain them in the difficulty. Show them how they're glorifying you as they remain committed.
committed. And Lord, I pray if there are areas of infidelity or abuse or abandonment that uh, have gone on and are ongoing in marriages, please, Lord, would you give them wisdom? Would you give grace? Would you help them, where possible, to have a soft heart? And where, where that's not possible, to show them the way forward. So I pray for your blessing on every married person here, on every single person here. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.